and it reads, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I am writing to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Amen. You may have your seat as Pastor Todd comes. Oh, we're journeying our way through this small letter, and this small letter was given to us by the Apostle John to show us two things. What does it mean to love God, and what does it mean to love one another? And that's what we're going to see over and over and over again. You're going to get tired of me saying that, but I'm just going to say it because that's what John says. And so we were looking in the last two weeks. We'll be again this week. Remember, we started a few weeks ago in the courtroom, and in the courtroom, uh, John showed us that there's four people, and then he ended it with the advocate Jesus. And then a few weeks ago, we walked into the classroom. And in the classroom, John began, began to give us tests so that we would know, do we love God and do we love other people? So we began to take those tests. Well, we're back in the classroom with the last test. And this isn't like your ordinary test. This is more like an assessment test. Anyone ever take assessment tests? That's what John is going to do. He's going to let you know, let me know, and let the church know where do we stand in our maturity with our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. A way you could look at it is like this. I don't know about you, but how many of us want to have maturity? Well, I'll do it in a juvenile way. I don't know about you, but when I was a little kid, I was really little. Like, I know I'm 6'2 now, I didn't hit my growth spurt until I was in college, which it doesn't bode well for many high school kids. So going in my freshman year of high school, I might have been all of five foot eight, maybe 110 pounds. I mean, I was little. And I remember just having this like anger and desire to grow. Now I come from large people. My granddad was 6'8", my uncle 6'5", my biological dad is 6'3". So I looked to them and thought, man, if I could just be like them. There's only one little issue with my grandma, who was maybe 4'11". And I thought to myself, please, oh God, no. I'm going into my high school year, I'm all 5'8", and then I began to track my maturity. You probably did this as well. You know how we would track our maturity and our growth process. I don't know about you, but I would stand at a door frame and somebody would mark how tall I was and then put the date. And I don't know about you, but this is how I did it. I did that every single week. Now, let's think, I'm, a, I'm a freshman in college. I ought to know better. But I was tracking my maturity. 
the, the saddest part is, like, I didn't grow much during those four years of high school. And I got discouraged. And in my discouragement, I tr stopped tracking my growth. And then I got to college, and, and I went from maybe 5'9 to 6'2. Now, if you're like me, like, growth takes time to actually see. It wasn't like one morning I woke up, uh, the, the morning I was 5'8", the next afternoon I'm 6'2". It was a slow process of growth. But I stopped tracking my growth because I didn't think I'd ever grow. And then I got to college, and then I was in uh, my freshman year, but I never got to go back home to actually see how much I had actually grown. I think that's so true in our Christian walk. That's what John is going to show us this morning. He's going to do that in a few ways. He's going to do that to say and to remind us as a way of encouragement. He's going to say there's three ways in your maturity. And he says it's okay as you progress, as long as you're progressing. He starts off by calling them children. Then he calls them young men. And then he calls them fathers. Now, ladies, you're not off the hook. Though it's in the masculine sense, it's a generalization of mankind. So John is going to say to us, let us track our maturity. So this morning, I want you, with an honest assessment, to track your maturity. My greatest fear is this, that we come to know Christ, and in our lack of tracking our maturity, We've lacked progressing in our maturity. Meaning we don't see results and we don't see them as fast as possible. And the zeal we had when we first started isn't the same zeal we have today. It's my greatest fear. I'll say this as a way of encouragement to this body. Over the last year and a half, your desire to grow in your maturity is one of the most encouraging things in the last 25 years of my ministry to watch your hunger and your desire for maturity. So I want you to take that assessment knowing your pastor sees the maturity that you're growing in. Now you'll be the last one to see it. But I want you to know as your pastor, I see it in each of you. You are growing in your maturity. So whatever Satan's going to say to you in this moment as you take this test, know that there's a shepherd, the great shepherd, and then the earthly shepherd that is saying to you, no, no, you are growing in your maturity. So know that. Now let's see where we're at in this process. So the question you'll have to ask yourself this morning is this. Am I still a child? And that's okay. Children are meant to be what? Children. Nobody wants a toddler to act like a 35-year-old. That's dangerous. Here's the other part, though. Nobody wants a 35-year-old to act like a toddler. That's crazy. See, one's dangerous, the other's crazy. But you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, where am I in this progression? Am I a child? And if so, what do I need to do to become a young man or a young woman? If I'm a young man, what do I need to do to become a mature mother or father. But if you don't take the assessment and you're not 
honest with the assessment, you'll stay stuck right where you're at. And Christ tells us throughout his word, he does not want us to stay stuck where we're at. It's called progressive sanctification. And ongoing, becoming more and more and more and more and more like Christ. Now here's the, the disclaimer. There may be seasons in your life when you go back to the door frame and you're like, man, I haven't grown an inch in the last year. That's okay. As long as you're doing what you need to do to continue to grow. The other part is there's going to be moments you go to the door frame. You're like, man, I grew two and a half inches. I promise this. That's not because of you. Don't boast in yourself. Boast in what God has done in you. Oh, it's because I read more. It's because I prayed more. No, it's because God poured out his love onto you. So he's going to show us that here in a moment. So think of that in your mindset. Who and where are you in your journey? He's writing to three people, children, young men, and fathers. But let's see where he starts. He starts in verse 12. He says, I'm writing to you. Little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, when we come to this text, we may think little children is referring to the same children he's writing to in verse 13. He's not starting with where you're at in your progressive sanctification. He's starting with where you're at in your justification. He's not talking to little children in the sense of how he's talking to them here in a few moments. What he is saying, John is saying, is if you are a believer... You are a child of God. And now he says to all believers, whether you're mature as a child, mature as a young man, or mature as a father, he's saying all of you have to be reminded of this one thing. Because if this is not true of you, there will be no maturity. You cannot progress in your maturity, in your walk with Jesus, if this one is not first, what's the first one he says? He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. John reminds us of two things. The first one is this. You are forgiven. Do you believe that? You see, if you've not been forgiven by Jesus, there will be no maturity in your Christian walk. There can't be. Because you do not know God and God does not know you. So you have to ask yourself this question first. Do I believe that I am forgiven? Now the second thing within that question is, do I live as if I'm forgiven? You see, the promise in this text is you have been forgiven. But how many of us don't allow that truth to reshape our reality? If you are a child of God, you are forgiven. But how many of us still walk around as if we are not forgiven and we try to pay penance to make sure we are forgiven? That is bondage. That is slavery. That is not freedom. 
I want to read you just a few verses about the promises of you being forgiven. Because again, I'll say it again, you cannot walk with God without the forgiveness of God. This is what the psalmist says. In Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Your transgressions are forgiven and your sins are covered. He goes on to say, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquities and whose spirit there is no deceit. He uses two words to say that we're forgiven. The two words that he has forgiven us of are these two things, your transgressions and your iniquities. Anyone ever wonder what a transgression is and what an iniquity is? Like They're not synonymous words. Those are two different words in the text. A transgression is this, the actual act of what you've done wrong. It's called sin. It's the action. The actions that you have done are forgiven if you're a child of God. I said it a few weeks ago, I'll say it again. Sin is sin is sin, and forgiveness is forgiveness is forgiveness. The blood of Jesus wipes it all clean, no matter small or large that sin is, because in the mind and heart of God, it's all the same. Now again, I'll say this. The consequences may differ on the earthly side, but the consequences of sin on the heavenly side are the same. It's called separation without God. But he's saying, your sin has separated you from God, but God has forgiven you. Now walk in forgiveness because now you have relationship back with God. So he says the first thing, your actual sins, the actual actions that you've done have been forgiven. Now he goes and says this, though. He says, Blessed is the man whom against the Lord counts no iniquity. Now, what's the word iniquity mean? He says, this is the word iniquity. It's from where the sin originated. It's called the heart. He's saying, so even your actions inwardly have been forgiven. Your outward actions have been forgiven, but the place where it comes from has been forgiven. That's what he says in Ezekiel. I've taken the heart of flesh out of you and put a heart of stone in you. But how many believers still walk around with a heart of flesh? I mean, a, a heart of stone and not a true heart that belongs to Christ. And we live defeated. You are forgiven this morning. Isaiah, the prophet that went into the holiness of God and fell before his face and saw his own sin. He says, woe in me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Who am I? Some 30 chapters later, he says this. And I think it's, he's saying this in light of what he saw in verse, in chapter 6. This is what God says to Isaiah in chapter 44. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. You know how clouds come and go like that? what he's saying the sins that you've committed i've blotted them out they're gone and your sins like mist return to me for why i've redeemed you 
just the chapter before, Isaiah says this in verse 43, verse 25. I, I am God. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my sake. And catch this last part. I will remember your sins no longer. Now, if God doesn't remember our sins, how can we carry them? I got one amen, Joshua. Let me say that again. If God does not remember our sins, what do we still carry them as baggage for? Have you received forgiveness and do you walk in what you've received in? My greatest fear for us is we've been given this gift of salvation. We've been given this gift of forgiveness and we put that gift on a shelf and it collects dust but we don't enjoy the gift that's been given to us. Now, again, it'd be like this, Miss Marilyn. You make those uh, yum-yum bars? That's one of the greatest gifts I get. Now, they're not going to sit on my desk and collect dust. I'm going to enjoy those things and want more of them. Hint, hint. Right? But how often, how many times has Miss Marilyn came into my office and I have a stack of yum-yum bars? At some point, she's going to be like, yo. I mean, she wouldn't say this. She's not going to be like, she would never say bro, but that's how I'll hear Miss Marilyn say, bro, what are you doing? And I wonder how often God sees that in us. You have been forgiven. May you live that way, church. Now catch what he says right after this part. He says, you've been forgiven. How come? How come in the text? For whose name's sake? His. Your forgiveness ain't about you. It's about him. It's about his glory, his name's sake. Like, it all hinges on, if you're not forgiven, it makes him look really bad. Because then he can't hold to his promises if he hasn't forgiven you. But how many of us, we think, that it is for our name's sake that we have been forgiven. No wonder we keep on trying to be forgiven as if we're not. Like we got something to prove. You got nothing to prove. You were not picked last on, on the cosmic game of kickball. Like, oh, I guess, I, eh, Joshua, yeah, like you're dead last, bro. No, you were picked first. There was something about Joshua that God said, I choose him. And it'd be like Joshua being like, nah, man, I don't want to play. Right? But we often live our lives that way. God wants you on his team. God chose you to be on his team. Now go play like it. Play like it. And now he gets into the bulk of the text. I'm going to go in the progressive order, not in the, the, the verse order. The children, then, the, then I'll skip to the adults and I'll come back to young men. He spends most of his time talking to young men in the passage. So that's where I'm going to spend most of my time. So I'm going to sandwich it, the young men in the middle, with the children and the fathers. Or the young people, the, the, the babies and the adults. He says this. In verse 13, he only addresses them one time. 
The other two he addresses twice. He says this in verse 13c. He says, and I'm writing to you children. How come? Because you know the Father. That's the only reason I'm writing to you. Now, the question I have to ask myself, you have to ask yourself, is this. Do you know the Father? You see, now, that word know doesn't mean all the intricate details of something. It's talking to an infant. Do you know an infant comes out of the womb knowing its parents? Like they know the sin of a mom. They know the, the words of a mom. Why? They, they, because they've been with the mom for nine months. And there's something in a baby when it comes out of the womb, who do they want to go to? Mama, daddy. How come? Because there's something in them that believes that these parents are going to love them and care for them in spite of who they are. That's why a baby cries out to mama so that mama will what? Change the diaper, put him to bed, and give him something to eat. That's kind of all babies are good for. And a few pictures. True? And that is what John is saying. Hey, children, babies, do you know the father like that? Do you believe that God will take care of your very needs? Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, or 7, verse 11. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give you good things to those who ask him? Like if a baby's crying, you, you don't give them nasty food. You give them pure spiritual milk. That is, do we believe that God will do that for us? My greatest fear is this. We don't really believe that God is our good father. We don't really see him that way. And maybe you don't see him that way because you didn't have one of those coming up in the world. But the promise is true from God's word. He knows you and you know him. Here's what one author says about this. This is J.I. Packer, a great godly theologian. He says this, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thoughts of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that promotes and controls his worship and his prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. I'll read it again because that is a lot. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, so if you want to understand how much understanding you have of your own walk with God, this is how you ought to take the test. Find out how much you make of your thoughts about being God's 
child and having God as your heavenly father. If this is not the thought that promotes and controls your worship and your prayers and your whole outlook on life, it means that you do not understand Christianity very well. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. How do you see God? He goes back. Let me read the text one more time. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the Father. The question is, how do you know the Father? And do you know the Father? You see, you can't move on to the next two progressions of your maturity. The first step is, have I been forgiven my sin? The second is, how do I interact with God? Is he my Father? Is he trustworthy? Do I trust him? Now let's go to the backside, verse 13a and 14a. Now we're going to talk about the mature believer, the fathers or the mothers. The text is this, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. He says it again, I'm writing to you fathers in verse 14a. Because you know him who is from the beginning. He says the exact same thing two different times. He must be driving home a point. If you are a parent, you tell your kids something twice, it matters. And if you tell them like within a few seconds of each other, it really, really matters. Like you want them to do something about what you're telling them. That is what John is saying. Hey, you mature people. Now John is almost 90 at this point. He could have called who he's talking to children again, but he's like, Hey, there's some maturity that you have. I'm going to talk to you, the mature one. What I'm going to say to you is this. I'm writing this because you know him. Now, that's a different word than the know that we just talked about with children. That know means this. That that word know means that I am taking in knowledge of something. A baby can take in no knowledge. But what John is now saying is, hey, you the mature believer, are you and have you taken in knowledge of God? You see, you cannot mature in your walk with God if you do not take in knowledge of God. You see, if you don't start as a baby taking in milk, you'll never come to fruition in your maturity. You will die. My greatest fear, again, is this. You've come to be babies you've not continued to grow in the spiritual food that's been offered to you. How crazy would it look like if all of us in this room were still sucking on bottles? We'd look ridiculous. I mean, we wouldn't be able to enjoy food. Hey, you want to come over for lunch? I got some hot milk. Okay. But how often do we do that in our Christian walk? We're still sipping on milk. We have not progressively grown into what Paul will later say is, hey, be done with the spiritual milk and get on to the good stuff. So now you have to ask yourself this question. Are you a mature believer that's feasting in the Lord? Like, do you come to God's word and is this satisfying you? 
Like, do you look at this like a, a, a filet mignon? Or does it still look to you like purified baby food? Now, baby food's all right, I guess. It's bland. It's filling. But man, it's not delightful all the time, is it? Do you, do I delight in it? Here's another way to say it. The Apostle Paul says it this way. In Colossians chapter 3. Am I soaking in the knowledge of God? Am I studying the Word of God? Am I studying the character of God? You see, that's what this Word is packed full of. The holiness of God. Like, this book is not about you. Do you know that? This book was not given to you for you so you can go live your best life. I know somebody in Texas with a crazy mullet says that. But this God gave us his word to reveal to us one thing, his character. This book is not about you. This book is about him. And am I delighting myself in him? That's what Paul will say in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16. He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, abundantly, is what he's saying. Teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom singing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts. We can only teach and admonish and sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in our hearts if we what? We dwell in the Lord. Are you dwelling in the Lord? If you're here this morning you Dwell in the Lord. You are a mature believer. Now John gets to really the heart of the maturing process to young men and young women. I believe he writes the length to which he writes for one reason. This is the process you will be in the longest. You will be in young adulthood, in your Christian walk, the longest. Don't try to go too fast through this process. You'll miss out on all that God has for you. But he says this. Let's read the two verses that he addresses young men. Verses 13b and 14b. He almost says the same thing again. He says three things to them. He says this. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. That's the first thing. The second thing, he says this in 14b. And I'm writing to you again, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you. You have overcome the evil one. Three things John is reminding us. This is a reminder to us. This is not something that is, that is going to happen. This is something that is happening in you as you go from a young child to young manhood or young womanhood. These things, these things are true about you. The three things that are true about you are this. You are strong. It's not up for debate. You allow the word of God to abide in you, and you've overcome the evil one. Now, do we live that way? Do we live strong? Do we live with the word of God abiding in us? 
And do we really believe that we've overcome the evil one? Let's look at these. The first one is this. Am I strong? Because if I'm strong, then I'll know I've overcome the evil one. This is what James says in James chapter 4. But look what James says. He says, resist the devil. Well, with resistance has to come, what, some level of strength. Because if you don't resist something, you will crumble underneath it. And so he's saying, resist the evil one, push against the evil one. So you must be strong in pushing against the evil one. And then it says this, when you resist him because of your strength, it says this, he will flee from you. It doesn't say you will flee from him. Catch that in the text. How often do we think, I got to flee the evil one? No, no. God says through James, you resist him and he flees from you. It's like that punk dog that comes into your yard. You know those dogs? Like you just do one of those and they go scattering, but they come with this like great growl and you're like, oh. But the moment you resist them, they go running off. That is what God is saying to us. You have that kind of strength. So do you? And he says this, not only will you resist the evil one, but what? You have what in the text? Let's read it together. It's the last five words in verse 14. You have overcome the evil one. Not just you've resisted him, now you've overtaken him. But do we live resisting him and do we live like we've overtaken him? Remember what Paul will say to us. What are we over? Coming with the evil one, his temptations, his schemes. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you. Right? He's piggybacking on what John says. You've overcome the evil one because no temptation has overcome you. That is common, that is not common to man. How come? Because God is faithful. You overcoming the evil one has nothing to do with you. It doesn't say, I know it's close. It doesn't say Todd is faithful. It doesn't say Joshua is faithful. It doesn't say Miss Patty's faithful. It doesn't say Mimi's faithful. It says God is faithful. And he, who will, God will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But with that temptation, God will also provide, provide a way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. You've overcome it, not because of you, but because of God. Now, how do those two things have to happen? How do I resist the evil one with strength? And how do I overcome temptation? He says it in this word, in this word, it's sandwiched in the middle, because the word of God abides in you. Is this true for you? Is this true for me? Do we say what Joshua says in Joshua 1.8? This book of the law shall not depart from my mouth. 
but I shall meditate on it day and night so that I may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then then, then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. This is what God is saying to Joshua. He's saying it to us. If you want to know that you've overcome the evil one, you want to know that you have strength, you have this. It is what Paul says in Ephesians. He gives all the armors of God. And they're all defensive pieces, but one. Which is the one, the sword, truth. You want to overcome the evil one? Wield this like a Jedi master. Maybe you don't like Star Wars, but those Jedis, they can do some crazy things with a, with a lightsaber. Can you do the same with God's Word? Are you so familiar with God's Word that it's like a, an extension of you? My great fear is this. We have God's Word, but we don't wield God's Word. Could you imagine going into battle and keeping your sword by your side the whole time? But we do that, do we not? May it abide in you and you and it, and may you wield it with great confidence. Not because of anything you do, but because of everything he's done. Back to what he says, for his name. Is that true for you and is that true for me? And as we come in closing this morning, where are you in your maturity with the Lord? If you were a young baby, that is okay. We're here to help you mature in your walk with Jesus. If you are a young man or a young woman, we need you. Let me say that again. We need you. Young men and young women, there's there's this strength and fervor and zeal that babies don't have, and someday when I'm 80, I won't have. Now, I have a lot of knowledge, but I won't have the strength to do what I used to be able to do. So we need the young men and young women in their faith to wield this sword, to protect the babies, and defend the mature. I'm going to talk to the third party, and it's a third of you in the room, to you, the mature believer. Are you using your maturity in Christ to teach those under you? You see, if you've walked with the Lord a long, long time, this is not the time retire now I know in the business world like it's like 55 I'm I'm checking out I wish I could do that in 10 years but that ain't going to be the case but if you're mature in the Lord you have some knowledge and you have some experience that I don't have I'm 45 years old some of you almost twice my age so you've walked with the Lord way longer than I have and you've walked with the Lord way longer than 
other people in this room have. Please, please, please don't sit in a pew. Use your maturity to help mature the babies and to give wisdom to young men. Here's what I know to be true about me. I'll wield a sword and I might hack your arm off. I might hack the arm off of one of my own soldiers. Just, I'm just crazy in that way sometimes. I need someone older than me to be like, yo, yo, slow down, man. I need that wisdom from an older, godlier man or woman in my life. So I don't need you sitting in the pew. Even as your pastor, I don't need you. And this church doesn't need you. Where are we in our journey with the Lord? May we take this assessment this morning. Are you a child? Are you a young man or young woman? Are you mature in your faith today? May we all grow in our knowledge of him who who has called us and equipped us, as Titus says, to live a godly life. Let me pray for us.